Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Food, our favorite topic, is an inspirational muse for artists of all disciplines. On this week's show, we're exploring the many intersections of food and art from visual to audible and beyond. We begin with muralist Zach Maris, who recently turned the exterior of Toop's Meadery on North Carrollton in New Orleans into a riotous celebration of Louisiana foods. We'll savor each individual element as we learn what inspired Amanda and Isaac Toops to provide their mid-city neighborhood with some world-class art. Next, there's a TV soap opera star in the house. Christian LeBlanc of The Young and Restless joins us to discuss his life as a visual artist and how oysters have recently inspired an entire catalog of new work. Then, we'll move on to the art of the written word as legendary Louisiana storyteller Glenn Petrie reveals the role that food plays in his new novel, Advice for the Wicked. Ever try Teta Caspanan? Stay tuned to learn all about this obscure Bayou delicacy. And techno-romantic sculptor and jewelry artist Thomas Mann joins us to explain how he's turned favorite Louisiana foods like gumbo, shrimp, and oysters into highly sought-after pieces of personal adornment. We're covering delicious art from all angles on this week's Louisiana Eats. Located on the corner of Carrollton and Dumaine in New Orleans' Mid-City neighborhood, Toops Meadery has been the home base for Chef Isaac Toops since 2012. For most of that time, the building's facade was a kind of dull slate gray, which belied the liveliness you could expect to find inside any typical day. Amid the coronavirus pandemic, with the restaurant shifting much of its focus to feeding the community, especially the out-of-work members of the service industry, Isaac and his wife Amanda decided to put an end to that everyday exterior, commissioning a brightly colored mural to replace it. Toops Meadery's mural is the subject of a new short documentary by filmmakers Jonathan Evans and Marion Gay. Here's a clip from the video featuring the voice of Amanda Toops. I had been isolated with the children for two solid months and I finally was like, I have to go up. Like, I need to be there. I need to go. And we were all socially distancing on the patio, the entire staff. And I'm just looking at this building. And I was looking at the wall. And I was just sitting there. I was like, we're going to paint a mural, like a love letter to the city, like the things that have happened here over the last couple of months. And I want the neighborhood to drive by and, and smile when they drive past the building and know that, like, we are rooting for all of you. 
Featuring flora and fauna found inside our Louisiana swamplands, the mural represents Isaac's deep roots in Acadiana. It also features a hand passing a meal to an open hand, a representation of the restaurant's commitment to feeding the hungry during the pandemic, whether they can afford it or not. It's really just about the exchange of food. The artist behind the project is Zach Maris. Son of Chef Gerard Maris, Zach has only recently begun working as a muralist. But you can already find his work across the region, as Zach explained to us. There's a really cool restaurant out in Jefferson called Hippie Kitchen. Got some crawfish on there, a big blue heron, some owls. There's another one on South Miro and Tulane. That's a pretty big one that's got a pelican. It's kind of hard to think of all the locations, but <laughs> there's definitely a bunch out there. The first mural I saw of Zach's depicted a great big jolly pig outside of Central City Barbecue. Well, that was actually one of my first big pieces in New Orleans, and it kind of kick-started my love for doing big stuff around town. It was pretty overwhelming at first because <laughs> I had never done anything that big, but I was all about it. And long story short, as soon as I got done, they loved it so much they made it into their logo and they've been hiring me to do stuff ever since. Given the growing presence of Zach's murals on our city's walls and buildings, it might be hard to believe he's only recently become a full-time artist. We spoke with Zach about his career, his process, and of course, his new mural at Toops Meadery. Well, let's go back to how this all started. How long have you been an artist? How did you acquire this ability? Uh, my mom, for sure. She was having me and my sister draw ever since we could hold pencils. I think we actually started with chalk on a chalkboard in our room when we were little, little bitty kids. She's always been an inspiration and she's always been really encouraging along with my dad. You know, he's a chef and I see that as a pretty awesome art form. You had for several years a pretty conventional job. Yeah, I worked as a civil drafter for an engineering firm in Mid-City for six years and I did most of my painting after hours. So what made you decide to take the bold step into being a freelance artist full-time? It was just a lot on my plate. I have two kids. I had a 40-hour-a-week job, and I was probably doing 25 to 30 hours a week of painting. So I wasn't feeling like I could give everything I could to painting, which is what I want to do. That's I want to get as good as I possibly can at that and uh, just progress. And I got to the point of feeling where I was confident enough to do it. So I I'm about two months into a full-time artist. <laughs> I've done about 10 murals so far. It's very interesting the way that there has been this whole public art shift and there's been graffiti artists and it's a big legitimate field. Right. Well, the whole reason I love this is because I love graffiti and that's the only reason I ever really wanted to do any art because I would drive by and see these cool lettering pieces when I was a kid and just so fascinated with it. I think a lot of the time it was just because it was big, you know, big and colorful. Did you ever do any graffiti work like that? 
Well, I grew up in the country, so <laughs> yeah, really. Our uh, our garage burned down, and uh, so we just had a slab there. So my mom just let me paint all over the slab. But it kind of it's it's not the greatest whenever you're holding a can horizontal. It doesn't really work that well. What are the skill sets that it takes to go from working canvas size to being a whole mural? How do you go about designing it? I got to say, it's just, it's pretty intimidating at first because you have such a big space that you're working on. Really getting the sketch down is the most important part. So with a project from start to finish, I'll work with the client on a design. Once that's done, I just freehand everything. Either I'll sketch it out with a spray can or a paint marker, something like that. Usually I'll use a paint marker because I don't want to waste too much spray paint sketching it out. And you may need to change something a little bit based on whatever the building surface is like. And after the sketch is done, I come in with the darker colors first. I always work from dark to light because I like uh, like misting on lighter colors and layers to get those accents. Like a good example would be like feathers for a bird kind of starting with a really dark gray and working my way up to like really just gradients of like lighter grays to whites. Do you change your mind? Do you get new ideas? Do you alter things as you go? I try and be organic with the color choices because I never really plan out colors. And um, I try to think of like past jobs that I do, which color schemes and which ones had really nice contrast. And I'm always trying to make things pop. But And that's exactly how it was for tubes. I didn't know what the background color was going to be, but the purple worked out really nice. It's, it's so warm and inviting. Tell me about how you all worked together to come up with this idea for their building. I reached out to, I believe it was Amanda. I saw a post on Facebook. They just wanted to get their building painted. I feel like we just hit it off right off the bat, like, they're super genuine, and I don't think they're putting up a facade at all. I think I did about two sketches for them, and they were super stoked on it. The way we got the subject matter for all of the animals and stuff for the uh, the building was basically based on Isaac's heritage and his uh, roots in the Acadian culture. So I saw the tattoo on his back, and that's a pretty pretty awesome piece. So there had to be an alligator in there. <laughs> Definitely. And uh, there's some little hidden stuff that's important to them. Like there's some ivy creeping around the top of the mural and one of their daughters is named Ivy and there's some poppies by the gator. And obviously (laughs) one of their daughters is named Poppy. On the left of the Carrollton side, we've got three pelicans looking up and on the Domain side above the awning, there's a big blue heron, which is one of my favorite birds, just flying across in a night sky. It's kind of funny. We didn't initially have a pig on there. I had designed that redfish kind of swooping up by the left of the door. And she was like, well, we are a metery, so we should probably put one land animal on there. <laughs> so, And Isaac's famous for his cracklings, so I decided to put a cool little pig to the right of the door. So that's how that pig came about. I really like the placement of it. So I'm super happy with the way it turned out. And it was just a big pleasure working for them. And they fed me, which was amazing. (laughs) So 
what what are your aspirations, Zach? What are you hoping that the future brings? Honestly, just being able to make a living wage doing this. If I can if I can be comfortable and pay my bills and be a painter, I'm good. Do you think that your art's going to get bigger? What are your limitations in this, do you think? Um, honestly, just getting more and more comfortable. I, I didn't say before, but one of my, <laughs> I've always been fascinated with the big clarinet on the side of the Holiday Inn. Oh my gosh, that thing's amazing. If I could ever do something that big, that'd be pretty, pretty sweet. Where can people find you and your art, Zach? So I'm on Instagram. My handle is zmarisart. Instagram is the best way to find me, and I post all of my work on there. Well, it's a delight to visit you on Instagram, and it's even more fun to be able to visit in person. So thank you for taking yeah. this time for us today. I so appreciate it. Thanks, Zach. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was great talking with you. That was New Orleans artist Zach Maris, whose dazzling new mural can be found covering the exterior of Toops Meadery in Mid-City. The story behind the mural is the subject of a new short documentary by filmmakers Jonathan Evans and Marion Gay. You can find their video on poppytooker.com, as well as on our YouTube page. Coming up next, Christian LeBlanc of The Young and Restless joins us to discuss his life as a visual artist and how oysters have recently inspired an entire catalog of new work. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce. How New Orleans does flavor. and New Orleanian Christian LeBlanc, known for his role as attorney Michael Baldwin on the daytime soap, The Young and the Restless, has been moonlighting. What began as a hobby, making birthday cards for his nephews, is now an avocation. Christian the actor is also a successful visual artist. His latest exhibit, entitled Wet, opened in March at the Kevin Gillantine Gallery on Magazine Street in New Orleans. A few days after the opening, we sat down with Christian to explore his artistic muse. 
Christian. You know, <laughs> yes, many people know you as Michael Baldwin on The Young and the Restless. How long have you been playing his part? I started in 1991 because, you know, as you do get older, people suddenly become math whizzes. So I'm reminded <laughs> all the time. I, I was on three years. I was an evil character, got sent to actor jail. Therefore, I was doing theater. And then Bill Bell, the owner of our show and our executive producer, called me back. And I've been on steadily since 1996. So we're in the 20-somethings. And and how long has that show been on the air? 47 years now. We had our big 45th anniversary. And we have been number one for 30 of those years, over 30 of those years. Congratulations. Because. Daytime TV, that's almost like a dying breed. It's incredible the way you all have hung in there. Well, you know, you're in the media, too. Everything shakes out now with multimedia, with the Internet, with with these multiple sources of programming, which kind of for an actor you're and for everybody, you have so many channels if you look at it in the in the other way. To, to, you know, artists, musicians, to get your work out there and to be noticed and get an audience. But we were just renewed for four years. And New Orleans, lucky for me, is a prime, huge market. And I've told you and told everyone since I've ever done this is be famous where your parents are because that's the only point to the whole thing. Well, aside from being a very talented actor... You're also an absolutely amazing visual artist. I am so amazed that you're entirely self-taught. I do children's art. I start it in many ways. It all comes from being unemployed. And unemployed, I'm not a good unemployed person, so I will find things to do. And this is where I made money. I I substitute taught in Los Angeles because I was pre-med at uh, Tulane and had enough credit. And I started being put in kindergarten because apparently <laughs> I have the personality for it. And I and it's act more accurate than not. But also you've got to have more energy and think as fast as they do because they'll they'll eat you alive. But I used to try out these pictures on the kids. And and teachers at that time were like uh, almost double my age. Oh, you know, towing that load. I knew I could go home. These people were geniuses. But they also were like grandmothers now, and they were having babies. And, and I would say, give me three things about your, your new grandbaby, and I will do you a little fantastical picture. And it was commissions, and I earned extra money doing that way. And I thought, better than waiting tables. And I loved teaching, but that's where the art began. Wow. When did you discover you had this ability? How did you discover this? It's a great teacher story. That's what it was. She walks by. I'm in grammar school, and I'm drawing. I used to always draw. I drew all the time castles and cities and fantasy landscapes in in all the corners of my notebooks. Mm -hmm. And it was in the middle of class, and the teacher walked by, and she looked down. I thought, I'm caught. Mm. But she goes, and it's brilliant, and it's it's such a lesson because I remember it. I don't know who the teacher is. I don't remember where the school was. I don't remember the rest. But she goes, beautiful, comma, but not now. And that beautiful makes all the difference. She patted me on the back but disciplined me at the same time but encouraged me. And I remember. I remember the moment crystal clear. And it, just the power of teachers. My brother's a 30-year teacher at Brother Martin's in St. Paul's. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's amazing what you can do, what, what another human can do for another human. And, and, and hence, I go back to the people who've opened these amazing doors for me. But from there, I've also had friends who 
in my ear go, just do it. Just do it. Just do it. Your work is so incredibly realistic. The work you're doing now has a photo quality to it. So what about this latest turn of yours? Wet, it's all oysters on the half shell. And it looks like photographs of oysters on the half yeah, shell. Yeah, Kevin, Kevin at the gallery, Kevin Gillantine's gallery uh, is where, where he's the one who took me under his wing. Uh, he has trouble because people call and he has to repeatedly explain that they're, uh, they're not photographs. It's pencil. And it's then incredible the, that it's pencil because it doesn't look like pencil. For some reason, I always knew that I could draw it if I saw it. I'm not – I still can't just make up I, – I can't make up a f- human figure in my mind yet. I'm getting more of that. But if I see you – I did Dookie Chase while he was sitting at a bar. Leah used to let me come and watch her cook. Yeah. That's all I wanted because they watched the show. Oh, it yeah. It was like oh. an entree. And I love that part. I mean, that was like the first artist I knew was my mother. And it's because she, first off, she raised eight kids, but she also won a cooking contest in New Orleans where all the chefs at Brennan's and all that judged. And she won for spinach oyster soup. <laughs> and when she died, we laminated the recipe. And that's what we gave out instead of the, with the holy card. Well, before you started drawing food itself, you certainly had food <laughs> as a topic because there is that wonderful the piece that you did of Mr. Chase outside with the Dookie Chase yeah. sign. And then there's a great still life called Lunch at Casamentos. This is a whole different process, these oysters. Yes. Let's just drill down on wet. I was at Felix's. The little marble place that's still left at Felix's before they opened up to the big restaurant. And I had two friends with me again from the show and a girlfriend. And I'm standing there like we did in the old days with your foot on the bar and ordering it. And they dumped that bag of oysters out and you smelled the ocean right away. Not a hint of anything that wasn't fresh and a sea breeze blowing through the place. And I'm on my third dozen. They're looking at me horrified because they're (laughs) these poor Yankees don't know what to make of it. By the end of that, Lissy held one up and she had tinsley nail polish. And she Uh, held one oyster up and said, let me take a picture. Because it was right after the shucking. And that's all of them have to be. A big part of it is an oyster changes so much, anything, if if it's not fresh. And so I saw the picture that we took later on. It was just in my files and stuff. I went, oh, it does so much. There's mother of pearl. There's concrete. There's flesh. There's water. There's bubbles. There's moist. There's everything. And oh, and it's kind of beautiful. What an array of colors it turns and out for an is artist, inside of one oyster. And all of them. I mean, I would find them. It, it, I, I barely realize that they're the same species. And what's interesting, they stopped being oysters for me. And I originally, when he asked me to write a descriptor of, of the gallery show, I wrote, it's a series of landscapes and portraits. Because <laughs> it felt like what I, when in the process, the feeling was I'm, because it's very detail specific. Mm-hmm. So... I'm going through the nooks and crannies and the places and the secret parts of these creatures, and they are living things. And I ate them all. There's a, there's a very intimate relationship between us. And it's like you said, then the colors and the, and the, the, the warp and weave of tissue on, and light in particular bouncing off of all through that, that, that just this perline, pearlescent flesh and then bouncing back and... If you were in school, they give you these. You'll see them in 
Delph and, 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 and Rembrandts and stuff, these still lifes are studies in that very thing. And so you pr would practice all these textures in one little animal. And that's where it started. But as I worked later, the biggest one is my bar now because it was just, and you can also hit that detail more and, and really work it. And, and I, th I think the goal eventually is when someone comes up, they just don't say oyster. The first word might be sex because that's inherent. It's like George O'Keefe's flowers. There's something sensuous and sexual. And, and women, actually, weirdly enough, and an 80-year-old actress on the show, they're just so sexy. Look how sensual. I'm like, okay. Yeah. There yeah you hands go. up. That's, that, that's where you go. And I think when you get to these bigger ones and to the one that's very faded, the more subtle ones, you start taking it places. And, and I play with light now and stuff. And I think the other one, I think Kevin saw the big one and said iridescent. And he said, that's so hard to capture in any kind of medium. Christian, what's coming next? I had promised myself when I was unemployed, when I was employed, I wouldn't drop any of these projects, these things that I discovered that I loved doing. So I think, I think we'll continue. I'd like to do a few more of these, but I'd really, I'd kind of have a hankering to go back to those things about New being here is, is a... There's a big, huge tin kettle that sits in Casamentos that looks like a thousand years old, and I've taken a million pictures of it. And I want—I I find myself wanting to go back to those things that elicit those, you know, like, like we all know, smells and those kind of things, much better than the picture of the person or the event sometimes take you back. And I want that kind of thing. I want to share New Orleans, a bit of that kind of, which I do, I think, in a lot of my art. Oysters, there's a reason I opened in, in New Orleans. <laughs> well, to look at a piece of art and have it elicit a taste memory mm. is quite a full-spectrum experience. Yeah, yeah. I know my people. We know our people. <laughs> I know what I can do. Well, <laughs> you are something else. Thank you so much for taking the time to oh, talk with us. And I can't wait till the next time. And thank you, Poppy. And, and by the way, Poppy was at that opening. And it means a lot when your friends show up, you know, and it, it made a scared artist feel just a little more comfortable as he's, he's putting it out there. So I thank you, too. And thank you for this opportunity. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. That was Christian LeBlanc, actor and artist. You can find his work on ChristianJulesLeBlanc.com. Glenn Petrie is a legendary storyteller celebrated for his films that explore Louisiana's Cajun history and culture. After spending his 20s making low-budget Cajun dialect films, in 1986, the Cut-Off Native's first English-language film, Belazar the Cajun, became an international sensation. Since then, Glenn has worked in a variety of media, often about life in his native Louisiana. Glenn's most recent work is a new novel, the first he's written since the 1990s. It's entitled Advice from the Wicked. This wild, sometimes heartbreaking bit of Southern Gothic magic realism follows a young Louisiana mother and her son from the years 1893 
1915. These two characters, who incidentally are never named, travel from the Jefferson Parish Gulf Coast to sugar plantation country and finally to New Orleans, meeting famous characters along the way and, of course, encountering all kinds of food. The mother and her son sample everything from shrimp and oysters to pralines and fairy floss. Within its pages, food comes alive, especially those older food traditions that are fading from our collective memory. We spoke with Glenn via Zoom to learn more. Advice from the Wicked, it's sandwiched between the hurricane of 1893 and the hurricane of 1915. And in between those two, our characters move from that coastal village up the bayou to a sugar plantation and eventually wind up in the big city. And it's a story of this very strange young boy, eventually a strange young man in the story, and his mother, who's a bit odd herself, uh, and his efforts from the cradle to take care of his mother, to protect her from the world, to protect her from all the things that befall them. And believe me, a lot of things befall them in the course of this novel, uh, whether she wants him to or not. And meanwhile, he's growing up and he's learning about the world and he's learning how to fall in love and apprentices uh, to, you know, to a hoodoo doctor and, you know, becomes the bookkeeper for a brothel in Storyville and becomes, you know, just one thing after another and gets into more trouble than any fictional character has a right to. You know, it's all tying in one to the other to the his the history, which I love so much, but but also these characters which are they're bigger than life they're like the characters in the stories i heard growing up you know that's what i set out to do is to take take the spirit of those tales uh that would keep us up way too late when we were kids on the bayou and and you know work them into a fictional narrative I'd like to know what inspired advice from the wicked you've actually been working on this book for a decade more, more like 13 or 14 years. I, I started this because, you know, mostly, mostly made my living as a filmmaker. And this was a story that was bigger than anybody would give me a budget to make. Uh, and so I'd work on it and then I'd go have a movie to direct and I'd work on it and I'd have something else to produce. And then I'd have a museum wanted a designer and I'd go do that. And I'd sit it aside and Finally, when the pandemic came and, you know, it was scary and I thought, well, I'll be damned if I'm going to die without this book being finished. So I finished it and got it out there. Well, being a Louisiana story, this book is filled with food. Absolutely. And food could not help but being part of this story because it, it was so much of people's lives and you know, and don't get me wrong, this is, uh, this is magic realism. It's Southern Gothic. It's not a realistic tale, but, but the realism comes in the daily life. And daily life in Louisiana in those days, early in the 1900s, uh, was, was so much around food. We forget. Back then, we ate this wonderful cuisine, which was seasonal. And, and it was really for... The teenaged widow and son. And the story begins with her in a fishing village 
the calendar that they live by was really the seafood calendar. Right. August was a time when the white shrimp ran. And that was the big season. That was the big money-making season. And uh, it opens at her wedding, and the fellow she's marrying has his boat. And all through August, he will catch shrimp, which they would sane back then. Because there was these are sailboats. They couldn't pull big nets. They had to dive into the water and make a big circle and sort of corral the shrimp. And they would they would bring them to the floating canneries they had in Veritaria Bay and to the shrimp drying platforms. Then there are other things that happen to your heroine. Um, there's there's an incident that involves a deadly tartalabui. <laughs> Sweets are important. They add excitement to our lives. They they add excitement to our palate. You know, even simple country fare. You had sweets. I now, you know, growing up on Bayou Lafouche, we had, you know, people talk about the trinity, you know, that goes into a gumbo or this or that. But there's a trinity of sweets. I mean, for us, you had tarte la bouillie, blackberry dumplings, and then you had tatakas banan, uh, the tarte la bouillie, which is a custard tart, is uh, the penultimate dessert down on Bayou Lafouche. Um, and this character, whose name is Victorine, she is, I won't say she's a villain, but she she may have villainous tendencies, shall we say. <laughs> and part of those uh, have to do with a certain disrupting in the absolutely worst way a gathering. And it involves tainting the tartalabouille. During that section in the plantation north of Thibodeau, there's a sequence where the young boy gets to enjoy the praline making, you'd say here, but growing up it was platin in French, the L's and R switch places, which was a whole day ritual. It was sort of as much a part of Christmas as anything. You know, in, in the book they're riding back in the carriage and, you know, they're, they're keeping warm by holding on to this warm candy that, until it's just cool enough for them to eat. I mean, now we, you know, you can go in any day of the week and buy things, but it was a seasonal thing. Food created our calendar. They, the it's two uh, of them, your heroine and her son, they wind up in New Orleans. So they arrive in New Orleans, mother and son, in 1907, you know, climbing off of the paddle wheel boat that took them from Thibodeau. And they climb over the levee, which is swarmed with people you know, pushing hand trucks and carrying rolling barrels and carrying bales and just, you know, on the side of the little narrow boardwalks, there's, you know, mud a foot deep. Uh, but they, they crest the levee and see the city before them. And back then, New Orleans was bustling. It was booming and it was welcoming immigrants. And all those foods we today associate with New Orleans, like uh, of sandwiches and you know, had their birth in this place, had their birth in this time. They were brought over and then became something new because nothing stays the same and nothing can remain unchanged when faced with all these other just as tasty influences uh, coming in. So so the culture's mixed and, and our cuisine grew from it. Uh, mother starts out as a fortune teller. 
um, and they face the same hurdles. World War One comes along and changes life for everybody. You get the sense of all the the rivalries, uh, which in the book become all-out war between the various bagnios, the various houses. Uh, you get a very unsanitized, but also a reverent look at what that world was like. I've, I've often wished that I could go back in time to the French market and perhaps meet some Calais ladies. Well, you can. Read the book and it'll <laughs> take you there. <laughs> that was Louisiana storyteller Glenn Petrie, author of Advice from the Wicked, available on Kindle. What in the world is the Tetacasabanon that Glenn Petrie writes about in his new novel, Advice for the Wicked? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Just 40 minutes from New Orleans, Louisiana North Shore's Tammany Taste features the bounty of the bayou and rich culinary culture from award-winning chefs, mom-and-pop restaurants, specialty bakers, and creative mixologists. To discover more, request the newly released Explore the North Shore Inspiration Guide for local stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, where New Orleans has come to play and get away for more than a century. Here's this week's culinary quiz question. Brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What in the world is the Tetacasabanon that Glenn Petrie writes about in his new novel, Advice for the Wicked? Well, the answer's pretty complicated. The Casabanon comes from the Cucurbit family, which means it's a gourd related to squash, zucchini, and pumpkin. This perennial vine has fuzzy stems and leaves with white or yellow blooms, resulting in big, oblong, melon-like fruit. Cut open a ripe casabanon, and you'll find firm, sweet, cantaloupe-like flesh with a seed-filled core. If kept dry and out of the sun, the fruit will last several months. 
It's beloved in Puerto Rico, where it's commonly sold in markets by the pound. In Louisiana, well, I know the Casa Banan can be found in Glen Petrie's Maroney backyard. And if you know where else, I'd like to know too. Because one thing's for sure, Casa Banan is real. Louisiana Eats. Thomas Mann is a New Orleans sculptural artist whose most frequent medium is jewelry. Since the mid-1970s, he's combined industrial aesthetics and materials with evocative themes and imagery to create a style he calls techno-romantic. In 2012, Thomas joined us in the studio to discuss how food inspires his creations. I began by asking him what he means by techno-romantic. Oh, well, that was a term I uh, came up with to uh, describe my work back in the early 80s because I was combining kind of industrial found objects with heart shapes and precious materials and things like that. And I had several names that I had called it um, before that. One was Heartware, H-E-A-R-T-W-A-R-E. Uh-huh. And, then, uh, and then I came up with the name of Paranormal Jewelry Objects, which was a little too weird for most people. And uh, then I called it future primitive jewelry objects, uh, but I got a cease and desist letter from the uh, from the people who owned the uh, trademark on that. And one day I just had to, you know the brainstorm and it came up with techno romantic, and I immediately trademarked that name. <laughs> so I know that food has been previously an inspiration for your jewelry, and I frequently wear your Thank shrimp you earrings. Much. Love those. Tell us about that food jewelry. Well, you know, it all stems from a long interest in food and cooking on my part. You know, for for 10 years, my brother Todd and I were partners in a natural food store, juice bar, and catering company in the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania. And uh, there I invented a number of menu items for us, including the Earth Burger and the Carrot Dog. The Carrot Dog. (laughs) Which I still make today. So I've always loved food. And one of the things that happened back there in the Poconos was there was a local produce vendor called Pocono Produce and a wonderful guy named Ed Dreeby, who was the owner of that company. And we would stage art events in the produce warehouse. (laughs) And it was there that I made my first piece of food jewelry for one of those events. I made an artichoke necklace. Then I started making food jewelry ever since. (laughs) I really wanted to talk about your new line of inspired food jewelry accessories. When our mutual friend, boucherie chef Nathaniel Zimmett, was shot last summer, you donated some very special... Mm -hmm one-of-a-kind pieces to the silent auction. Tell us about how all that came about. Oh Well, this is another interesting story. I have a friend who's a chef, Bonnie Stern. She's a Canadian chef. And she's uh, been in New Orleans a couple times. I've been up there. I've had shows in Toronto. And every time I'm there, we have an event at Bonnie's house. She's friends with the gallerist that shows me there. And so at one point, we were in contact. She says, hey, I want to invite you to this event in New York. I said, okay, what's that? She said, well, I've been invited to be a guest chef at the James Beard house. And I went, I'm there. 
<laughs> I am there, like big time. It was really phenomenal. So to thank Bonnie for this, I made her a pair of chef knife earrings. And it was the only pair of them I'd ever done. I did it just for her, and I didn't think about it ever being a product or anything like that. But when the opportunity came up to make something for Nathaniel, I went, I'm going to do the knives, you know? And so I did the earrings first, and I said, you know, I'm going to make a bigger version. Now it's just the whole thing's rolling. Oh, yes, it is. Then I made the saucepan earrings, and then I made more crawfish earrings, which I've done before, but now I'm doing them differently. And now I'm thinking about a whole kitchenware full of line of jewelry. (laughs) It's pretty amazing. Tell us about some of your other food jewelry pieces, because you you actually had done all sorts of things even Prior to this, mm-hmm. we did the gumbo necklace. We have a whole necklace that's all of the components that go into a gumbo mm-hmm. with a big gumbo pot at the bottom of it. <laughs> you know, it's like that's one of my favorite pieces, you know. But it's all hand fabricated, it's all really has a wonderful, beautiful, really tasty feel to the whole thing. And then I also have one of the forks that from the show that I did years ago called Food for Thought. In the early 90s, I did a whole show about the supply of food to the world. So tell us about that original food for the world. What was the inspiration? What were you trying to do? You know, I'd become a vegetarian because of a book by uh, Frances LePay, where she talked about the fact that there was more than enough food produced on the planet on any given day to feed everybody, but there wasn't the political, social, cultural will to distribute it in a way so that you could prevent things like, at that point, it was the Somalian famine, Mm. right? And so uh, that stimulated me to make a series of pieces that were all about those kinds of issues and questions about food in the world. And it was a very um, challenging exhibition for a lot of people because the images I used and the pieces that I made had very heavy political and social kind of implications. And that show toured to uh, galleries and shops and stores and museums around the country for a couple of years after that. So it's just another one of those areas where I was really interested in food, but from a kind of slightly different angle, not the culinary angle. So that was food for thought. Food for thought, yes. You know, I suspect that most people don't know what a passionate cook you are to this day. <laughs> um, you, you spend a lot of time cooking when you're not making jewelry. It's definitely my hobby. <laughs> I'm working on sauces at the moment. Well, tell us about uh, your kitchen and, yeah. and t- tell us about your whole Well, you know, thing. I bought this old bar here in New Orleans, this uh, the Rose Tattoo across the street from Tipitina's, and... Um, I've converted what was the bar into the kitchen, and it's kind of industrial looking. kind of looks like a real restaurant kitchen. Yes, it does. Yeah. But that's only because I'm applying the same techno-romantic kind of design (laughs) to my physical space as I do to my work, you know. And I just love uh, cooking in this particular kitchen. It's a galley. Yeah. It's a galley. It's a line. Everybody gets into the fun. Yeah, and then everybody sits at the bar on the opposite side and has drinks and hors d'oeuvres and stuff like that while I'm preparing the meal. And I and just carrot dogs. Yeah, I carrot dogs. <laughs> I just love doing that whole thing, you know. Uh, so it's really, it's, it's my serious hobby slash potential avocation. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming to talk with us on Louisiana Eats. Well, thanks so much for having me. I love your show. I love everything you do. And I just love being part of this. Oh, gosh, it's a mutual fan club. That was Thomas Mann, passionate cook and techno-romantic jeweler speaking with us in 2012.
that's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and videos, too. And if you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. If you missed our Mardi Gras cooking class, you can also find access to the video at poppytooker.com. We'll be releasing the footage for Loon de Gras. Plenty enough time to get the menu ready for this year's Fat Tuesday. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. D'Agostino's all-natural, preservative-free pasta is available in traditional forms, as well as their signature alligator, crawfish, and fleur-de-lis-shaped pastas. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch in the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.